Um, you know, and, uh, and I was, it was wonderful to get to attend the meeting um, this morning at, uh, at Oak Street and to think about the 75th anniversary of that. You know, I fought a lot uh, this past year, um, as I'm sure many or all of you know, we, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous celebrated the 80th year uh, of its existence. And, you know, more and more the longer I'm sober, uh, the more I realize how fortunate I am to have been born in a time when Alcoholics Anonymous existed. Um, Alcoholics Anonymous did not exist when my grandfather uh, was the drunk driver who was killed in his car, as were people in his car and in the other car. Um, and, uh, and he left my grandmother a widow with 13 children. And uh, Alcoholics Anonymous did not exist. One of those children was my father. And when my father was born, Alcoholics Anonymous did not exist. And he was to go on and drink himself to life alone in a hotel room. Uh, Alcoholics Anonymous was one year old when my mother was born, and my mother was to be one of the people in Alcoholics Anonymous who was to go in and out of Alcoholics Anonymous for over four years with varying limits of sobriety. Uh, and the fact that I'd be born in a time when it exists is something that I really do feel, you know, um, more grateful for almost every day of the year that I stay sober. So I put it down. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, you know, I want to welcome anybody who's new. And by the way, can I ask is, if you're in your first year of sobriety, can I just ask if you can just raise your hand so we could welcome you? Great. <laughs> I, um, I want to thank the people who came up and, uh, and welcomed me uh, today, some of whom had already heard me talk, you know, uh, before, and, and some of who haven't, but I really want to thank you for taking the time to do that and to make me a little bit more comfortable. Whenever I'm asked to share in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, I try to remember to say a couple of the same things that I want, want to try and say, because I think they're the most important things. And in case you're anything like me, and this can still happen today, I can't always listen to an entire talk. I have to often get back to thinking about me. So, <laughs> in case you're having one of those nights, um, let me just tell you that I'll say the very most important things that I'll say right now. So you really only have to maybe pay attention one or two minutes. Um, first and foremost, I am not an authority on alcoholism or on Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm just a member. And um, secondly, no one who shares in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous or at a conference or whatever, none of us are paid to do this. Alcoholics Anonymous is for fun and for free. And I know afterwards, sometimes, you know, you can sit around the coffee shop and go, well, thank God we didn't have to pay for that. But <laughs> that leads me into the other thing that I think is very, very important. You know, over the years, people come to Alcoholics Anonymous in many different ways. And I really don't think it matters how anyone does come to Alcoholics Anonymous. Some people have come through a phone call to their local intergroup or central office, others through a family member, through a clergyman, a doctor, a judge, um, a jail meeting, a prison meeting, or uh, many, many, many people who come in through a variety of different types of treatment programs that exist in the country today. And I don't really think it matters, as I said, how anybody gets to Alcoholics Anonymous, but because people come in in so many different ways, I do know that sometimes people get a little bit confused about where the program or whatever that got them here was and what AA is. And so I want to be very clear about the fact that Alcoholics Anonymous itself is absolutely free. Had it not been free, I never could have come. Had it not remained free, I never could have stayed. 
I was over 10 years sober in Alcoholics Anonymous before I could afford to put a dollar in the seventh tradition basket on anything like a regular basis. <coughs> Excuse me. And I haven't been able to always put a dollar in since then. You know, um, this is not about money. And, uh, and that's something that, uh, that I believe is so important. Um, because I could tell when I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, um, I couldn't figure out why people were doing this. Um, I couldn't figure out what the scam was, what the game was, what was going on, and I was watching for it. Um, and the fact that this is free uh, is really, really important to me about what, where Alcoholics Anonymous boils down to, you know, the most important kernel that I can think of, which is one alcoholic talking to another for free, on it for free. I'm a person who believes I was born an alcoholic. I do not want to have a philosophical discussion with anybody about that. <laughs> but it's what I believe, and I, I believe it for a lot of reasons. Um, but I also know that whether or not I was actually born an alcoholic, there was something wrong with me before I ever started to drink. You know, I come from an alcoholic uh, background. I come from a lot of violence. I come from a lot of broken promises. Um, I come from a family that I've come, you know, to realize like, later years in sobriety that suffer from mental illness issues, poverty. Um, you know, there's just a lot going on. And um, I was raised by a single mom uh, who was a bar drinker in some really, really violent bars. And uh, when I was growing up, I kind of looked at the people that my mom hung out with. All of them drank. I don't know if they were alcoholic or not. Uh, but they were heavy drinkers for sure. And I looked at the two, you know, these two different groups of people that I saw in my world, which were men and women. And before coming to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, I do not ever remember seeing a man cry under any circumstances. And I took that to mean that men never feel pain and nothing hurts them. And in my life, I've seen men shot, I've seen them stabbed, I saw them arrested, I saw their kids overdose, I saw uh, their wives leave them, I saw a lot of stuff happen. I never saw a man show anything like pain. And the women in my life walked through all of those same experiences as well. And many of them were very tough, but they had a breaking point at some point. And I looked at those two different groups of people and I decided immediately which one I wanted to be like. Now, when I was a little kid, as they do with almost all little kids, they'd say, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, a boy. <laughs> now, it wasn't as easy to do that then as it is today. <laughs> so this was, you know, quite a concern, because uh, I didn't just, you know, mix it in with, you know, the nurse, secretary, teacher, you know, great answers you're supposed to give. I was very consistent uh, in my answer. <clears throat> Um, <coughs> my first obsession uh, in life, before I started to drink um, or mix it with anything, um, was suicide. And from the time that I was five years old, I began to try and kill myself on a regular basis. And honestly, before I came to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, I don't think that there were hardly any days that I didn't try and take my own life, put myself in a position where someone else would take my life. I prayed, oh God, that I was slowly losing faith in to please let me die. Now, I can certainly look back and see that some of my suicide attempts were to try and get attention, but by and large, I really wanted out. I really needed to get away from the pain of life. There was nothing that I was looking forward to. I just, I needed out. And so, given that, you know, the way that I felt about life and the world, 
it may not surprise you um, when I tell you that I, was, that I am today very, very grateful um, that alcohol worked its magic for me. Um, that it could take away pain, that it could make it not matter, that it could make you not matter, it could make me not matter, it could make it not hurt. Now, I wasn't a party girl. I don't have a lot of funny, um, wild, and crazy stories to tell, as so many people in Alcoholics Anonymous have so many great, colorful stories. Um, I wasn't drinking to feel good. I drank to not feel anything at all. I have not ever drank without getting drunk. I have not ever said, I've had enough. <laughs> um, you know, this wasn't in my vocabulary. And along the way, I, by the time I started to drink on a regular basis, at eight years old, I had already been using drugs for almost a year by that time. And I found a combination by the time I was nine that I never altered in any way. And that was barbiturates or downers or reds or yellows or sleeping pills or whatever you might know. I don't even know what they're called anymore uh, with alcohol. And the combined effect of those got me either into an overdose or certainly to where I didn't care. And that's where I was going. And I'm very grateful that it worked that way for me. And you know, as uh, I was growing up, you know, I was raised um, in a very um, strictly Catholic family. And uh, this idea that I wanted to be a boy and I kept cutting my wrists and, uh, you know, I was just filled with so much hate toward me and the world from the time that I was five. When my family began to take me to priests for counseling. And uh, we were on welfare. Um, after a while, and the priest told my mom uh, that she should take me to see some professionals because so uh, we could see medical doctors, um, you know, on, on welfare, psychologists and psychiatrists. And I have seen some, not as many as lots of, lots of other people in Alcoholics Anonymous have. I've just seen some. I don't have any diagnosis to give up about what I'm sure some of these very well-meaning professionals uh, wanted to say or do for me because I had... Um, I felt about those people much like when I got sober with a friend of mine named Patty Hicks. I felt like those people should have to work for their money. And so I never told them anything. I never answered one question. I never filled out any forms. I did not play with their dolls. I sat there the required 50 minutes, and when we were done, I just walked out. And I wasn't able to get any help, you know, from those people. And along the way, my first lesson maybe in life on acceptance to realize I wasn't going to be able to be a boy, so I had to look at the world and decide what was going to be the next option. And, you know, it's funny, I, uh, I, I talked in a meeting, I'm not sure how many years ago now, but this guy came up to me afterwards uh, to thank me for talking, mainly I think because the sponsor was standing behind him and told him to, but... He said, you know, he said, I really like the way you told your story tonight because I don't really believe it was your story, but I like the way you told it. And, uh, and that's my favorite thing anybody's ever said to me after a talk in AA because I think it's just such a tribute to Alcoholics Anonymous that someone could actually doubt that I used to live the way that I used to live, that I used to act and feel the way that I used to feel, you know. Because what I want to assure you, is when I walked through the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous, I looked exactly like my story. And I looked like my story for a hell of a long time after I came into Alcoholics Anonymous. I have not done this quickly. You know, I've heard that there's a, uh, a program somewhere in Minnesota that promises <clears throat> the equivalent of a year of sobriety in 30 days. I figure. <laughs> yep, it must always be full, you know, because it doesn't have, you know, that's, that's just exactly what all of us would want, right? Anyway, um, so the way that I saw the world, um, 
I couldn't become a boy. Um, was the, op- the closest option I could see was to become a tough bride. And over the years that I've been sober, you know, I've had the privilege of traveling um, some. And I've gotten to meet a lot of people, women and men, from a lot of different states. And I've come to see that sometimes, you know, the things that, uh, that I put in the tough broad category, it's really got some geographical features to it. So it's very different, perhaps, in Cincinnati than it might be in Venice, which is the town that I'm from in Los Angeles. And so in Venice, it's a beach town. And if you're going to be a tough broad in Venice Beach, you have to have tough feet. And I had the ability to walk down an alley with broken glass, barefoot, and this meant a lot to me, by the way. Uh, apparently it still does to some extent, or I would have no reason to mention it. <laughs> One of my favorite things to do would be to stand down on the boardwalk when I saw touristy looking people kind of staring at me and my gang, and I would take my cigarette, and I would throw it down on the sidewalk, and I would put it out with my bare feet. <laughs> And I'd see these touristy-looking people, and sometimes they'd whisper back and forth, and I knew what they were saying. They were saying, wow. <laughs> that is one tough bride. And, and I was very impressed that I could do this. You know, after I'd been sober for a while, my sponsor explained to me, you know, maybe what some of those people were saying to each other was, did you see that? That person just put flesh to fire. Why would anybody do anything so stupid that I, excuse me, I did not know there was another way of looking at it. When I was uh, trying to pitch up fraud, it was important to me to be in a gang, and I was. And it was important in my gang that you do a lot of fighting, and I did. It's important that I always mention I have never won a fight in my life. I never fought less than five people at a time. And again, after I've been sober for a while, my sponsor explained, you know, if you fight one person and you lose, some people are going to be able to talk about whether you're very good at fighting or not. I mean, there's just no question they're going to have a conversation about that. But if you always fight a group of five or more, no one expects you to win. Um, and in my life, you know, I have that uh, incredible emotional sensitivity that so many of us in Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, know about. I could get, you know, absolute strangers could look at me funny, and it hurt so much that I felt like I was being cut inside with a knife. And, uh, and when I went to, uh, you know, to school, um, I went to 18 grammar schools, seven junior highs, and five high schools, and I went, we moved a lot. So I went to these schools, you know, I had this hair, and tonight I have conditioner. Back then, I mean, people still come up to me and they go, I remember you, I went to school, I remember your hair. I I don't really remember that. But anyway, I got teased a lot, and it really, really hurt. And so one of the first things that I found for myself is that I would much rather you punch me in the face than hurt my feelings. And you'll have to take it from me, the short version here, I was very good at getting people to punch me in my face. I I knew just the right things to say. so, my mother, um, as I mentioned you know, earlier, um, was a person that was going to be in and out of Alcoholics Anonymous, and she was, with varying lengths of sobriety. Um, she brought me to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous one night, <coughs> excuse me, not because I wanted help, not because I asked for help, not because I admitted having a problem, not for any of those reasons, simply because she thought she left me alone in the apartment, <coughs> excuse me, and I might uh, throw another party and get her evicted. So I came to the meeting that night, and uh, there was a guy in that meeting that I admired more than anybody else in the whole world. 
And some of you may not identify with the reasons that I was impressed. But this guy was a drinking friend of my mother's. And he drank in those really tough, violent bars that my mom drank in. And when Paul was in that bar and he had been drinking, if he came over to your table and he wanted to sit at your table, you gave him your table. You didn't discuss with him why he wanted your table and there was an empty one right there because you didn't know what Paul was going to do to get that table. He was one of the most hostile and violent people I knew. And I just thought, wow, I did not think people who won fights came to hate me. I thought it was, you know, because, you know, like myself, my mother had never want to fight. She only fought guys who were six feet, you know, and a hundred pounds more than she was, but she never won. So it really made an impression on me that, that Paul was there and that he was sober and that someone who was tough would come to AA. <coughs> so I, um, I came back the next night and I talked to Paul. He was the only person that I considered cool enough that I was willing to talk to. <coughs> and in, in having these conversations, um, I explained to Paul that I wasn't an alcoholic, that I couldn't possibly be an alcoholic, that I wasn't anything like my mother, who we all knew was an alcoholic, that I was too young to be an alcoholic, that I had places to go, people to see, things to do, I had my whole life ahead of me, and that I was very obviously not an alcoholic. And I later found out that non-alcoholics don't have to spend any time trying to convince other people that they're not alcoholic. You know, they already know that. And Paul turned to me and he said, you know, June, I'm pretty new in this AA thing. And they tell me I can't diagnose anybody's disease but my own. He said, in your case, I'm going to make an exception. <laughs> he said, I've seen the way that you drink and I've seen the way that you use chemicals. And I happen to believe if you don't come into this program and take with these people, I've talked to you for a period of six months or less, you're going to be out on the streets, you're going to be shooting stuff, and you're going to be selling your ass. And I knew he wasn't trying to make something up like the teacher I do in high school. He was just talking about facts. He was talking about things that had happened or were beginning to happen around my life. I thought a little bit about what he said, but I did not want to join Alcoholics Anonymous. I did not want to join an organization that would allow my mother to belong to it. You know, I, um, I blamed my mother for everything that had ever gone wrong in my life. And taken it from me, again, the short version, a lot had gone wrong. You know, I talk about it, you know, this flash. The first time I spoke in a meeting about Alcoholics Anonymous, I was nine months sober. I was the first speaker in my home group, 20-minute talk. And when I finished, the secretary said to me afterwards, he said, you know, if I had wanted to hear your mother's story, I would have asked her to speak. I was just that wrapped up in all that, you know, she had caused. Um, and that's when I got to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. The only person that I was filled with more anger and hatred toward than my mother was me. And uh, I really believe that the amount of self-hatred um, that I felt by the time I came through the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous was not only what brought me here, it was what kept me here. Because, you know, I was never afraid of what I had on the streets and dying. That's not ever really been the reason that I stayed sober. I tried to die as long and as hard as I could out there. My fear has been and was then that I could go on and continue to be able to live the way that I was living. And I could not stand who I was and what I was doing and where I was anymore. And I suppose that's true for many of us when we come through the doors of Alcoholics. That's what brings us here, you know. I, um, <clears throat> when 
in that two-week period of time, I've talked to Paul, explaining to him all the reasons why I wasn't really an alcoholic. Absolutely every option that alcohol silence was removed from my life. Because of the anger and the hatred that I was filled with, um, I looked at the whole world with anger and hatred, and I hated everybody. And again, my mother and I had a violent relationship. We had had a violent relationship. But she was getting sober again, and she didn't think she had to be subjected to any attacks in her apartment. She asked me to leave, and I did. I had been in a lot of foster homes, none of them would take me back. The rest of my family was not really having anything to do with me, and didn't until I was almost five years sober and alcoholic anonymous. And so I thought, you know what, who cares? Who cares about these families and these programs and these foster homes? None of that really matters. Well, I had tried a couple programs. There were like three in Los Angeles for uh, alcoholism back then, and I was not accepting any of them, some because of my age and some just because of my attitude. So not only does it really matter, what really counts is my gang. And then one day as I walked down an alley in <coughs> L.A., all five, five members of my own gang beat me up. And so I found myself sitting in a meeting with Alcoholics Anonymous. And I was 87 pounds. I had a black eye. I had a swollen lip. I had no shoes. Wouldn't have worn shoes if I had them. I had no family. I had no money. I had no place to go. And so I raised my hand in a meeting with Alcoholics Anonymous. And I know tonight... But there were some people in that meeting that did not know about the traditions of Alcoholics Anonymous, in particular the third tradition, the one that says the only requirement for AA membership is a desire to stop drinking. And I certainly did not know anything about the traditions of Alcoholics Anonymous when I came to those meetings. And I know that some of those people didn't know about them either. And the reason I say that is because when I raised my hand in that meeting, some of those people knew who I was because my mother had been in and out of that group for so many years. And they came over to me and they told me they didn't want to—excuse <coughs> me—they didn't want a little kid sitting in their meetings while they talked about serious things. And they told me that if I came back, they would get together and throw me out. And I didn't know that Alcoholics Anonymous had a tradition that said that the only requirement to have a desire to stop drinking. I just thought, hey, they didn't want me either, and that's okay with me because I didn't want me either. I had it for as long as I could remember. So I went over to a friend of my mother's house, and I went into her bathroom, which is the first place I went in anyone's home I ever visited. <laughs> in that bathroom, I found enough of the kind of pills that I needed to kill myself one more time, and I took them. And then I went to a noon meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, and by the time I got to that meeting, I could not sit and I could not stand. I had to lay in the meeting. I haven't been to that many meetings here, but I bet you guys don't usually call on people to share when I'm laying in the meeting either. <laughs> For some reason that day they called on me and they recognized that I needed to be in a hospital. And that's where they got me to. And uh, a doctor gave me something and explained uh, to us, those of us who were there, <laughs> that the pills I had taken were to slow down my heart. And had I been there five or ten minutes later, I would have been in a coma that they probably could not have me out of. And I don't know why that overdose was any different than any of the others I inflicted upon myself, but I know that it was. Because since that time, one day at a time, I haven't taken anything that affects me from the neck up, and that is how I personally define sobriety. Um, you know, uh, I came in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I really did not know if Alcoholics Anonymous was going to work for someone like me. Um, and I think that's actually a good, good place to be. Um, you know, I remember speakers would come to my home group sometimes, and they'd say, you know, I speak at this group every year. Once a year, I come to your group. And next year, when I come back, half of you won't be here anymore. And I always knew they meant me. Um, I was thought, I'm never going to make it. I'm not the kind that make it, you know. Um, and, and yet, in hindsight, I think that was good, you know, that I was, uh, I, I never, I never felt like I got this. You know, and 
uh, and that's, that's a dangerous place uh, for an alcoholic of my time. You know. Um, anyway, I, uh, I got very active in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. I went to 21 meetings a week my first couple of years. I'm very grateful that there were that many meetings in Los Angeles. Um, I was going to those meetings largely because I had, if I wanted to be indoors, um, I went to a meeting. I didn't have a place to live a lot of the time for those first couple of years. Um, I want to be very clear that there was as much kindness offered to me in Alcoholics Anonymous as there has ever been offered to anyone that I was completely incapable and unwilling to accept it. And so I have to say that I'm very, very grateful to the old timers who were here who tolerated me the way that I was. And I'm very grateful for that for a tradition that allowed me to remain in Alcoholics Anonymous. I came into Alcoholics Anonymous with the only attitude I had ever had, and it had always been bad. I didn't like women. I didn't want to be like a woman. I didn't want to be a woman. I didn't want to sit next to women. I didn't want to talk to women. I was not going to hug women. And I did not like listening to women speakers, which also makes me feel good because I know there's never as many people listening to me as it looks like. <laughs> the men that I have known in my life, you know, all were drinking and they were violent. There, you guys here were identifying yourself as alcoholics, so I knew that there was some alcohol involved there, and so I figured you were all violent. I didn't like the men either. And that was a problem because when I found out my sons, we had men and women I didn't like any of them. Um, I had a very limited vocabulary when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. Consisted almost solely of profanity. There were a few exceptions, the and mother. Um, I, I found some people in Alcoholics Anonymous that were very offended by that kind of language and I would frequently use it more when they got near me. I didn't wear shoes most of the first couple of years that I was sober. I mean, it was, I didn't take them off to go to a meeting. I just didn't wear them. I had a motorcycle chain on one of my wrists and one on my ankle. And I had a jacket and on the back it said, do unto others and then split. <laughs> that was my personal spiritual philosophy. Back when I got sober, I smoked. I had been smoking since I was eight years old, so I, I you know, of course I smoked when I came in Alcoholics Anonymous. I smoked three packs of cigarettes a day when I got sober. And sometimes someone would hold a match out of a gesture of being polite. I let them hold a match as long as they liked, but nobody lit my cigarettes. I lit my own cigarettes. Occasionally someone would hold the door, and I'd let them hold it until they got tired, and then I would open it. I want myself only. I felt it was very important to let you know I don't need any help from anybody. And of course, you know, I know how ridiculous that is now because no one is doing all that well by themselves. It becomes Alcoholics Anonymous. But I, I felt that I needed to make a point. You know, and after I conserved <coughs> a little while, I took up smoking cigars and then later a pipe. <laughs> and, and what I want to let you know is that I was able many times to have an entire row all to myself. <laughs> I knew how to keep people away. And I think for me, I got, Andy and I were talking about, you know, for me, speaker meetings have been an important part of my sobriety, always. And I think that for me, that is where I got the message of Alcoholics Anonymous. It is where I got what we talk about as the language of the heart. Because I could not let people touch me I could not let people sit too close to me. I didn't want to, like, you know, I wasn't going over hanging out with people at all. But the message of Alcoholics Anonymous was passed to me through the people who shared their experience, strength, and hope. 
and I knew that they knew what good upon incomprehensible demoralization was. You know, uh, one of the meetings, uh, the 2 plus 2 Westwood meeting, where I was the greeter, and I would stand at the door barefoot from my motorcycle chain and cigar, welcoming the new people. <laughs> so they came to AA, you know, I was 87 pounds, as I said, and I had this black eye and swollen lip and shake hands. The new people, and as they walked by, some say, your sponsor whispered, if you keep your feet, you can end up like that. <laughs> And that, that, at the time that I was standing at that door, the people who did not know how old I was were guessing my age at 37 years old. I was 13. And um, as I stand up here tonight, I have been continually sober since I was 13, and I have been sober for 43 continuous years in alcoholics. <laughs> Which means, even if you are as bad at math as I still am today, you got to figure, if I'm sober 43 years, I've got to be more than 37. And the thing is, is that, and I am, but what fascinates me and has for a very long time is that I feel at least a thousand years younger tonight than I did when I walked through the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous. I walked in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I was very, very old. And you either know what I'm talking about or you don't. And I did not believe, as amazing as the old-timers were in Alcoholics Anonymous, which I'm sure are just as amazing as your old-timers here today and back whenever you came into Alcoholics Anonymous, I did not believe there was anything about Alcoholics Anonymous that was going to take away that feeling of how old I was. How would you take that away? I don't know. I don't know how it could happen. It doesn't seem to make sense. Um, <clears throat> let's see, I'm trying to figure out a couple of things I want to talk about, because I'd like to get to present day, and I sometimes find that uh, when I first share, you know, I, uh, it's, it's really hard to share 43 years of sobriety uh, in a 45-minute talk and make sure that I'm, you know, kind of like hitting the high points here. So, so let me just say, first of all, and most importantly along the way here, you know, that sometimes it does sound like, and I think this is true for often when we share at a meeting, it sounds sort of like things were really, really tough, and then we came to Alcoholics Anonymous, and things were really, really hard for a while, and then all the way, you know, since then, it's been, woo! You know, and there's been some woo, but there's also been some woo, you know, and stuff, you know, whatever, and, and that's what life is. Now, I had sort of hoped when I came in doors of Alcoholics Anonymous that it would be kind of like a bulletproof shield from life. Sort of thinking, hey, I'm sober. What more does the world want from me? I mean, I think this is a lot to ask already. So, so I sort of thought, you know, if I work with principles of the program my son, then no one I love is ever going to die of cancer. You know, uh, no one, you know, I'm never going to be a victim of a violent crime. I mean, I'm in an AA. I'm never going to get fired, right? I mean, I'm doing the right thing here. I'm in AA. And none, of, none of those things have been true for me. And they haven't been true in a lot of ways for the people that I've known that walk the path of Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, um, everyone I know has had some bumps in their road in the years that they have been sober. And I have no idea why they had them, and I don't understand sometimes why I've had some of mine. You know, I, I have some now. You know, I can just about guarantee that I can tell you a few things that are going on in my daily life right now that you would not want to switch places with me about. And I'm pretty sure if I got to know you well enough that you could share some with me. 
you know. So Alcoholics Anonymous has not been a magic elixir so that there are never any problems um, for me, you know. Um, and what I think has been so amazing is that there is <coughs> there has never been a situation that I have experienced yet or known anyone to experience. But I haven't known someone in sobriety who has walked through that experience without bitterness, with dignity, with a sense of humor, you know, and with the support of the people in the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, and that's really a pretty amazing thing. You know, I, uh, I guess I'll just, I'll just jump to this really quick. I don't know, since I'm on that path here. You know, there, there are a lot of um, things, you know, about the early uh, old-timers, you know. So, and I know that you guys all know all this, so I, you know, but I'm going to throw it out there in case there's one or two people who don't. So, one of our co-founders was a guy named Bill Wilson. And uh, <coughs> when Bill got sober, he was sober six months when he worked with Dr. Bob, who was the other co-founder of Alcoholics Anonymous. So Bill had six months sober. Now, anyone in this room who's alcoholic knows how long six months is. That is one hell of a long time sober. And uh, they did not, when NAA grew uh, from the two, no, two members to three, et cetera, et cetera, they were still fascinated that Bill had six months. I remember we had no book, we had no real regular meetings, we didn't have a directory, you know, we didn't have steps, we didn't have traditions, we didn't have any of that stuff, right? And so Bill's got six months. Now, Bill had this stomach problem. He had ulcers or, you know, different things. So Bill drank um, tomato juice and sauerkraut because that settles his stomach. So back in the day, they had all the new people drink tomato juice and sauerkraut. And they thought that might be what's helping Bill stay sober. And, you know, so aren't you guys grateful we have a book now? Anyway. So going back, uh, even before Bill, there was a guy uh, named Roland Hazard. And uh, Roland was from a very, very prominent family. And I've been to the town uh, where he's from in Rhode Island, and I mean very prominent. Uh, and his family was very embarrassed about Roland's alcoholism. And they had all the had more money than most of us could probably imagine, and they couldn't help their son get sober because he was suffering from alcoholism. So they sent him to see Dr. Yeo in uh, Europe, who was the, one of the greatest minds at the time. And Dr. Young worked with Roland for a year, and uh, they thought they got everything straightened out so that Roland was going to, you know, not drink anymore. And Roland left, and within a couple of days was drinking again. And he turned around and he came back to Dr. Young, and he goes, what the hell? I mean, you know, I'm paraphrasing here. He goes, you know, I, I mean, I did everything, and we did all this work, and Dr. Young said, oh, I said, you know, you, I've worked with people like you. You are helpless. You are doomed. People like you, there's nothing anybody can do. Roland goes, well, wait a minute, that sounds pretty bad. I mean, nothing? Roland, I mean, uh, Dr. Young said, well, so there have been a few instances that I have seen someone who suffers from alcoholism like you do that have had a recovery. If they've had a psychic transformation or a spiritual experience, and if you look in the back of the big book about Toxonomous, there's a little appendix that talks a little bit about that. But anyway, so Roland said, oh, great. He goes, because my family, we own the church. I mean, we bought the whole church, and he goes, I personally carved the altar. So 
So I am good. We're good. And Dr. Ann said, no, sorry to tell you, being a member of a religious group and, you know, being active in your church is not necessarily the same thing as what I'm talking about. It has to be a complete psychic transformation where you live and think and act completely differently than ever before. And he said, I was trying to make that happen for you, but apparently I failed because you're drinking. So anyway, Roland went on, you know, after this, with this piece of information. He ended up passing on some of this when he joined the Oxford group to a guy named Ebby. And that guy, Ebby, was the guy that talked to Bill. And I'm just highlighting those little points right there. But the reason I wanted to give you that background was that when Alcoholics Anonymous was, I think, 15 years old, Bill Wilson wrote a letter to Dr. Young. And he said, hey, Doc. So you probably don't know this, but you played a very important role in Alcoholics Anonymous existing. And today, we have hundreds and even thousands of people that are sober. We have come up with a way through these spiritual principles that helps a person have that psychic transformation or spiritual experience, however you want to phrase it, that you told us was so necessary in order for an alcoholic of our type to recover. And I wanted to be sure you knew that this happened and say thank you. And so Dr. Young wrote back and he said, you know, Bill, I want to thank you for that letter. I did not know that I had made a contribution and it means a lot to me. Do you take the time to let me know that? It feels great to know that I could help. He said, but I want to mention, he said, you know, uh, it's not really enough in my experience that you have a psychic transformation. He said, my experience shows that even when people have a psychic transformation or a spiritual experience, it's not enough unless they remain active in a community or a society that supports that experience continuing to happen. And that, I believe, is why Meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous and Fellowship in Alcoholics Anonymous is so critically important. Because, you know, I have been sober about 43 years, and that's a hell of a long time between drinks, you know. But I haven't done this perfectly at all. I've made lots of mistakes, you know. Um, and so have all the people that I have walked along this journey with. The only thing that I've done perfectly is I don't drink no matter what. And if you don't drink no matter what, you can go ahead and hopefully along the way you can find someone who can help you relook at those spiritual principles or a different vibe. You know, in Alcoholics Anonymous, you do not have to drink to start over. I have had to start over many, many times in different ways. And I'm very, very grateful that drinking, you know, isn't what we need to do in order to do that. Um, and I'm very grateful for the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous that has been so important, you know, in my life. Um, and probably in the lives of all of us, you know. So, um, let's see, where am I going to go to? Okay, so when I was uh, sober, I got sober and uh, I had a seventh grade education after I'd been sober for a while. My sponsor wanted me to go to high school, and I did try, but it didn't work very well. Um, I really didn't fit in at all. I felt, you know, as I said, a thousand years older than all these other kids that were in high school, and uh, I just, it, it didn't work. So my sponsor said, all right, fine, if you're not going to be, if you're not going to get a high school diploma, then you're going to get the kind of jobs people can get with seventh grade educations. And I did. And I worked a lot of these different kinds of jobs. And that was part of the reason that I didn't have uh, any money or I didn't have a place to stay a lot of the time. And people, you know, eventually were pretty kind and let me sleep on their couch for a day or two or, you know, whatever it was. Um, anyway, and I took back to school eventually because I wanted to get a uh, driver's license. 
And in California, unless you take driver's ed, you can't get a driver's license uh, until, you know, you're 18. And I wanted to get that license at 16 or 17, and I was a couple years sober, and I went ahead and I took that uh, class. And while I was there, I was signing up, and back then it was the same price to sign up for one class or five classes. So while I was there, I heard some people talking about something called a dummy English class. And even though I could read at that time, I could have read the fifth chapter at a meeting, and you would hear the fifth chapter, I could not hold one whole sentence in my head and remember what I just read. And I felt that I had probably done permanent brain damage, you know, from the use of the chemicals and alcohol that I had used. Um, and so I thought, I wonder if I take that dummy English class, if that could help me learn to read again and hold thoughts in my head. So I took that class. And then uh, I kept going and I took some more classes. And uh, at the end of three years of attending college part-time while I worked full-time at all these different uh, part-time jobs that I had, uh, they called me in and they told me I completed all the requirements for what they called an AA college degree, which I thought was a nice name for a college degree. No one in my family had ever had a college degree. And I, and I thought that was great, but I came up with this dream that I had. And my sponsor told me if you have a dream, you have to do the same footwork that anybody in or out of Alcoholics Anonymous has to do to make a dream come true. So I went ahead and I did that footwork, and I went on to a university, and I completed the university. And after that, I had uh, more dreams, you know, uh, that I still needed to do more footwork. And I went ahead and did that footwork, and I got a telegram now. It's been over 30 years ago, uh, telling me that I had been chosen as one of 300 out of 3,000 applicants to go to law school. Now I want to tell you. I had always planned on spending a lot of time in court. I never on that side of the table. And I have a job today where I truly believe that I'm able to be of service. And I have a job today where I've never one day ever gone to work where I'm not reminded of where alcoholism takes people like me. It doesn't necessarily take everyone there, but there is no question about the places it takes people like me. You know, um, Let's see here. Okay, so um, you know, I think that it talks about in the in our promises when you, you know, when they read the promises, they say in the very beginning, they say you will be amazed before you are halfway through. And I don't know that there's really any distinguishing exact period of time for any each of us. That's, what is that? When is the halfway point? When is or was it? And I don't certainly don't know for me. I don't know for you either. But I have to tell you that I have been absolutely amazed at what Alcoholics Anonymous has accomplished in my life. And here's what I want to tell you about the most amazing thing. It's not really that I uh, have begun to be a lawyer over the years. That's great and it's wonderful. And I'm really very, I'm very, very honored and lucky that I get to be of service in that way. But, but here for me is probably the greatest single thing that has happened. When I walked through the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous, I hated everything about myself. I had always hated everything about myself. And the longer I was out there, the greater that hatred grew. Now, when I got sober, it looked to me as though people around me were taking 30 or 98 chips and they loved themselves again. And, and maybe they did. You know, it looked as though People around me, they became like all of a sudden they were like CEOs of companies. And, you know what I mean? And I, you know, I couldn't even put a dollar in the basket, you know, and uh, their family was like welcoming them back. And um, 
And that just wasn't my checks started coming in the mail. They just started getting checks. I'm getting checks. Yeah. I mean, you know, none of that was happening. I just thought, what step am I missing? You know what I mean? Like, I'm not doing this right. Um, but I got very active in service in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I have stayed active in a number of different ways in service in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I truly believe that those commitments that I took in meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous were going to be the thing that led to me initially <coughs> to that beginning of that psychic transformation. Because the first good thought I ever had about myself in my life that I remember having was I thought I'm a pretty good member of my home group. And I don't know, I was over a year sober before I had a good thought, and that was it. You know, I'm, I'm a pretty good member of this group. And when I was about seven years sober, I was at a dinner, kind of like this. It was at a convention. Someone had given me a ticket because I couldn't have afforded to buy the $10 ticket or whatever it was that night. Someone had given me some clothes to wear because, again, it was over 10 years sober before any of my clothes were bought by me. They were either bought from the Salvation Army or they were given to me by members of Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, and I was sitting there and I was at a table like this and I was wearing this brown dress. And as I sat at this table, you know, I was comparing myself to everyone else in the room. Something I still do if I want to make myself feel bad. <coughs> so I was looking around and I go, wow. I mean, look at that gorgeous black dress. I mean, you really wish you were wearing that black dress, don't you? I talk to myself too, by the way. And so I, I said, you know what? I really like this brown dress I'm wearing. What? Are you kidding? Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Look around. Now, how about green? I mean, green is absolutely your favorite color. You see the green dress over there? And I go, yeah, I see it. Like, now, does that dress, isn't that gorgeous? It's like, absolutely gorgeous. So you wish you were wearing that gorgeous green dress, right? I'm like, no. I'm like, what, are you kidding? No, no. And it was like, and I was fine. I wanted to have curly hair. Was, and I was happy sitting at my table. I didn't wish I was at the fun table. You know, the fun table. <laughs> like, why can't I be at the fun table? No. I was like, I was glad I was sitting at that table. But more importantly than all of that, which was a very big deal to me, I just want to tell you, I mean, this was unbelievable to me. For the first time in my life that I remember, and this includes before drinking, during drinking, in sobriety, all of a sudden, that night, right then, I wanted to feel what I was feeling. I wanted to be exactly where I was. I didn't wish I had your mother. I didn't wish I'd come from your town. I didn't wish anything was different than exactly how my life was right now. Now, it would make a much better AA talk if I could tell you that from that moment to this, I've always felt that way. That's not my turn. You know, some days I wish I was wearing a green dress, you know, or whatever. But I will tell you this. It has been many, many years, no matter how tough some of the bumps have been on my road, <coughs> it's been many, many years since I've wanted to trade places with anybody. It doesn't mean I wouldn't like to give up some of the bumps. But I don't want to trade places with anybody. And that, to me, is an amazing thing that Alcoholics Anonymous has accomplished for a person like me. We were talking today, uh, um, Andy and his daughter and his, uh, her boyfriend, and we were, we were talking about uh, going to uh, see art. And, uh, and I had, in the years that I've been sober, I, was, I, I don't know, any, I did not at the time know anything about art. I since have learned a little bit, but I went to Italy once and I, um, I saw the statue of David. 
And I actually was like brought to tears. It was so amazing, which is kind of especially cool to me because like, I didn't even know anything about art, but it was like, you know, I got it. You know what I mean? And just in case, you know, anybody, because I really, it, it, before I saw that statue, if you just said David, David, I mean, I heard him talking about David, David, but I just want to tell you a little bit about this, you know, very little bit about the statue. And I may even say it wrong, really, but it's, it's, a, it's a, a gigantic marble sculpture um, that is just, the detail is just astonishing, and it's very, very beautiful of, of David from the, you know, the biblical story. Someone told me afterwards, you know, long time afterwards, I heard someone saying that the artist was being interviewed, and they said to him, they go, oh my God, how did you create something this incredible out of a huge piece of marble? You just take a block of marble and you came up with this? It's unbelievable. How did you do that? And he goes, oh, it was really easy. But I just took away all the parts that weren't dated. That is what I believe is the process of what happens here in Alcoholics and Anonymous. I thought, and by the way, it was kind of good that I did in those early years. I thought if I stayed sober and I worked this program really, really hard, and I really tried to change my life, that you guys would make me into somebody that I might like. Somebody different, please. The truth is, is that the longer I stayed sober, the more you helped me become human. But I didn't even know that I was this person, you know. Um, and so it really has been quite amazing. I think I'm going to, um, okay, so, all right, I'll tell you a couple more things real quick and then I'll sit down. When, <clears throat> okay, well, you know, um, <coughs> After, it, it, during the process of law school, I met someone in law school and I got married. And um, I got married and I have three daughters, and um, which was really funny because like, I never wanted to be a girl, so it was very funny. <laughs> and, uh, and they would ask me stuff like, you know, how do you curl your hair? I'm like, I don't know. You know They've they taught me more about makeup than I ever, you know, I've never figured out whether I have a heart-shaped face or, you know, what length skirt, but they know all that stuff, so it's really, and by the way, like wearing pink apparently skips a generation, you know, because I did not even sit in a row where people wear pink, you know, for years, and they, they wear pink all the time. So, but anyway, so I got married, and, uh, and I have these three amazing daughters, but this was a very, very difficult marriage. Um, and, uh, and it was really, it was just really hard. It was just hard for everybody. Um, and so about uh, 10 years ago now, um, we, went, we, went, we went through a divorce. And everyone from this divorce, everyone is happier. He is happier, I am happier, the kids are happier. You know. But what was very weird for me um, was that I was deeply, deeply sad. And I really couldn't understand. It took me quite a while to understand, why am I sad? I mean, we weren't in love. We weren't happy. It wasn't the right thing to be together anymore. You know? And so why am I sad? And why do I feel embarrassed? And what is all going on? And I, of course, realized that I have a lot of old ideas. You know, that I, again, even in sobriety, I have to revisit these ideas and see whether they're working for me. You know? 
But one of the things I heard someone share in a meeting, and it just like clicked for me. This was a couple of years into it, and I just couldn't quite understand. I knew it was the right thing. It's supposed to be a better feel-good kind of experience. And I heard someone share in a meeting, and they said, you know, when I went through a divorce, they said, I realized that I, it was the loss of a dream. You know, and I'm someone who come from a lot of foster homes, and I come from a lot of different families. And I had hoped and thought that if I try and work the program of Alcoholics Anonymous the best that I could, which I had tried, you know, I certainly haven't done it perfectly, like I said, that it would ensure that I would have a good family. See, I'm going to have like three or four generations, and we're going to go on cruises together. <laughs> I've got it all, you know, I've got it all planned. But, you know, and as one of my sponsors said, you know, like, hey, you were, like, miserably unhappy for 25 years. Why do you want to hang in there for 50, you know, and to take a cruise? You know, so, you know, I had to kind of look at that, you know, but it was, um, it was really difficult. And then, you know, to, um, you know, when I came out of this marriage, I was, I never, I never thought of drinking, you know, um, I never thought of killing myself, which, you know, I mean, but it was, but I was, you know, I was kind of sad. And I kind of felt like, I was 35 years sober, and I thought, you know, I have really hit, <coughs> I've hit all the high points. Do you know what I mean? I'm like, I've had a good career. I've had, you know, three great kids. I've had a marriage. It didn't work out. You know, um, I've gotten just, you know, I've got a lot of great friends in AA. I've got a good relationship with my family. I mean, I've really gotten dealt an amazing hand, but all the good stuff is behind me. I've already gotten it all. There is no more good stuff ahead. So I figured, you know, I'm going to get a walker and start putting stickers on it. <laughs> Actually, last night that could have been helpful. My back was doing that. But anyway, and so, you know, um, and what's, you know, what's really interesting, so at 35 years sober, I got new new sponsors. And both of them are men. Um, and both of them had over, well, one had almost 50 years sober, and so they had like 48 years sober and 45 years sober when they became, they were like almost 10 years ahead of me. And they were, they were in our, one is still alive, uh, Sandy passed away, uh, but my sponsor, Bob Reagan, is, was celebrated 49 years in January. And both he and Sandy were two of the most active human beings I have ever known in my life. And they're both, you know, Sandy was over 80, Bob's going to be 80. These guys, you know, they're so active in Alcoholics Anonymous. They sponsor a number of people. They go to six meetings, you know, a week or more. Uh, they talk in a meeting at least, you know, once a week. They have a very full life. They were both working. They were, my sponsor was on three over 70 softball teams. And so we took his bat away because he kept sliding, you know. Uh, you know, he's playing golf, he's active with his kids, he's active with his grandkids, you know, he still works full time. I mean, you know, like all these things, it's like these really full, full lives. And I think, you know, I am so grateful that these two men who had over 40 years sober were still active in going to Alcoholics Anonymous. I mean, they hadn't wanted to drink in probably 35 or 38 years. So they weren't going to AA to help them not drink, you know. They were going to be in the service because AA had given so much to them, you know. And I'm just so grateful, and that's one of the reasons that I'm still trying to, you know, to go and stay active is to see if I can pass it on. So, anyway, um, you, know, you know, one of the things that I figured out, because I think things through, which is, you know, my first sponsor used to say, you know, I've never had a problem yet that's been as bad as my solution for it. But <laughs> I came out of, you know, I came out of this, uh, I came out of this marriage, 
And I figured, you know, moms don't date. I don't know if you ever told me that, but I know it. <clears throat> moms don't date. And, uh, and my sponsors were like, well, you got to date. I'm like, ah, you know, okay, first of all, I live in L.A. I mean, how many times has anybody ever come up to you and said, hey, do you know any women in their late 40s with three teenage daughters and a good sense of humor I could go out with? I mean, no. I mean, no one's going to go out with me. I mean, you know, it's like it's all behind me. I just need a locker and some stickers. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and I was talking to my sponsor, Bob, one day, and I, you know, I said, Bob, I have already been overpaid in Alcoholics Anonymous. I have had an absolutely amazing life beyond my wildest dreams. But it's all, it's all kind of you know, we've had it, it's, it's happened. And he said, you know what? He said, five years from now, you are not going to believe how amazing your life is going to be. And I said, oh, Bob. That's the kind of stuff I know we tell the new people. And, <laughs> and by the way, when we tell the new people that, it's absolutely true. Every one of us has experienced it or seen it happen over and over. I said, but I'm 35 years sober. I've already had all the good stuff. And he goes, no. It says in the book, the most satisfactory years of your existence lie ahead. And he said, and I don't think it just means when you're in your first 30 days. You are not going to believe how amazing your life is going to be. And, you know, not that long, I guess three years later, I ended up getting fixed up on a, a date, sort of, without knowing it was a date, which are the best kinds. Um, and uh, I had taken up, I, I get obsessed with sports, so I had taken up surfing, um, which is, uh, it became my passion. And, uh, you know, I mean, I want to explain that I use the word surfing, you know, as just sort of a generic term because, you know, that's like people imagine a board and someone riding it and standing and turning and doing all that. That doesn't always happen at the same time. There's a board, there's waves, and there's me. It's not always going just like that. But anyway, um, I took up, you know, surfing, and then someone on the program asked me if I would take a dive when he sponsored uh, surfing. And uh, we began surfing together, and uh, now we've, we've surfed internationally uh, together. And, uh, and Mark and I have been together for um, over seven years. And, um, and we have a, um, a relationship that is really directly responsible to things that we've learned in Alcoholics Anonymous. I mean, we both came from extremely violent alcoholic uh, uh, families that were racked with alcoholism for generations. And because of what we've been taught here by our sponsors and by our friends in Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, we treat each other with love and kindness and gentleness and a great sense of humor, you know. Um, and one of my uh, favorite speakers in Alcoholics Anonymous uh, when I first came in was a guy named Norm Alpe. I'm sure a lot of you have heard his talk or whatever, but every time I ever heard Norm talk afterwards, I think, I want to join AA, and then I remember I already belonged. I've been there hearing him, you know. But one of the things that Norm would talk about was he would say, you know, he'd say, but for, you know, a moment of grace and rooms like this and people like you, I could have missed it all, you know. And that's what I think about so often in Alcoholics Anonymous. I have been so overpaid, you know. Um, and I, you know, one of the, um, I want to read this last, uh, this last thing real quick, which has become my favorite uh, piece of AA literature for the moment. I change all the time. So the next time you hear me, I'll say, I'm going to read you my favorite piece of it. It'll be different. So that's what's so great here is that you can, like, tell well, next time you hear me, I can totally disagree with everything I believe today. That's fine. It's all good. Um, but, you know, uh, Andy and I, again, we were talking about, you know, <coughs> people 
say sometimes things, and, and obviously anytime anybody's sharing, I, I'd like to believe and, and do mostly believe that they're trying to, uh, to say it just to help somebody. And I think there's a lot of groups back in my area that are very active in uh, helping people go through the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I think that's very important. There's a lot of great stuff in the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous, but kind of like Sandy used to say, you know, the Big Book is not the treasure. It's the map, but it's not the treasure. And uh, I don't believe that everything is in the book. I think if it was, we would just kind of mail out books. Someone walk in the door and you just slap them upside the chest. Here's the book. It's all in there. See ya. You know. And so, um, what I wanted to read you tonight is uh, something that was, uh, this is from Dr. Bob, our co-founder. This was his last talk. A little bit long. It's not that long. I'll read it fast. <clears throat> My good friends in AA and of AA, <clears throat> I feel I would be very remiss if I didn't take this opportunity to welcome you here to Cleveland. Not only to this meeting, but those that have already transpired. I hope very much that the presence of so many people and the words you have heard will prove an inspiration to you. Not only to you, but may you be able to impart that inspiration to the boys and girls back home who are not fortunate enough to be able to come. In other words, we hope that your visit here has been both enjoyable and profitable. I get a big thrill out of looking over a vast sea of faces like this with a feeling that possibly some small thing I did a number of years ago played an infinitely small part in making this meeting possible. I also get quite a thrill when I think that we all had the same problem. We all did the same things. We all get the same results in proportion to our zeal and enthusiasm and stick-to-itiveness. If you will pardon the injection of a personal note at this time, let me say that I have been in bed five of the last seven months, and my strength hasn't returned as I would like. So my remarks of necessity will be very brief. <clears throat> there are two or three things that flashed into my mind on which it would be fitting to lay a little emphasis. One is the simplicity of our program. Let's not last it all up with Freudian complexes and things that are interesting to the scientific mind that have very little to do with our actual AA work. Our 12 steps, when simmered down to the last, resolve themselves into the words love and service. We understand what love is, and we understand what service is. And so let's bear those two things in mind. Let us also remember to guard that airy member, the tongue, and if we must use it, let's use it with kindness and consideration and tolerance. And one more thing, none of us would be here today if somebody hadn't taken time to explain things to us. So give us a little pat on the back, to take us to a meeting or two, to have done numerous little kind and thoughtful acts in our behalf. So let us never get the degree of smug complacency so that we're not willing to extend or attempt to that help which has been so beneficial to us, to our less fortunate brothers. Thank you very much. Recently, at my home group, one of the, uh, the speakers talked about this line in the fifth chapter, which, of course, I've heard thousands of times, as I'm sure many of you have, too. But somehow, when the speaker laid the emphasis on it, I really heard it differently, and I hear it differently each time um, it's read. And in the fifth chapter, there's a line that says, do not be discouraged. And how wonderful it is that that was included. And again, I don't think it necessarily means just for the people 
or just getting newly sober. I think it means for each and every one of us, because sometimes, you know, when we think of someone who's having a hard time, sometimes it's someone who <coughs> has 20 or 30 or 10 years. I mean, it really isn't something about sobriety, but sometimes life just gives us some pretty tough cards. I want to really thank you uh, for allowing me to be a part of this, and as my favorite uh, old-time speaker, uh, Norm used to say, thank you, I could have missed it all. Thank you for not letting me.